0: Welcome to the WarPod, official podcast of the Remote Warfare Programme, a London-based research initiative focusing on remote warfare—the trend where states support local and regional forces on the front lines rather than deploying large numbers of their own troops. The remote Warfare Programme is part of the Oxford Research Group Peace and Security Think Tank. I'm Alistair Mackay, senior editor at Oxford Research Group. In this episode, we'll be joined by Yola Demers and Lauren Gould from Utrecht University to discuss the use of remote warfare by democratic states and the problems yielded by this practice. Enjoy the show. So Hi both, thank you uh, very much for dropping in. I thought we could start very simply by you introducing yourself and your work on this topic.
1: Okay, um, I'll start then. My name is Jola Demmers. I'm a professor in conflict studies at the history department at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Um, I set up the Center for Conflict Studies about 20 years ago uh, and since then I've been teaching and writing on theories of violent conflict and war, on military neoliberalism, remote warfare, and under the heading of the Intimacies of Remote Warfare, I'm currently engaged together with Lauren Gould in research projects on, on this, the spatial and temporal reconfiguration
2: of warfare and its blowback effects. Um, my name is Lauren Gould, I'm an assistant professor at the Centre for Conflict Studies and work uh, uh, with Yola Demers. Um, Yeah, one of the questions that you asked was, you know, how did we run into or start this project? It was very much while I was doing field research in Uganda in 2011. Quite physically ran into the US military command um, in a club in Kampala, actually, um, 10 uh, big, strong men and women. And I was intrigued by what they were doing there and why they were there, and um, started to trace their movements and realized that this was a very good example of. remote warfare tactics where these um, 100 US military commanders were there to train and advise um, and finance the Ugandan military um, that was then uh, used to both fight the Lord's Resistance Army, but also against Al-Shabaab and um, in South Sudan. So we see here through, you know, very few boots on the ground, the US had a very clear forward posture, as the DOD calls it, and was able to shape you know, the security environment in East Africa and um and really protect their interests there. So this is where the project started and Yola and I um really traced the US military command across Africa and see what they've sort of kind of looked at what they were up to um and set up a conference entitled The Intimacies of Remote Warfare program uh, conference and that was really the start of this program and the program really aims to just inform a, academic but also public debate about the kind of intimate realities of the remote wars that are waged in our name.
0: And so the conversation piece I suppose as you could frame it for today is this um, article that's recently published on international relations and it's uh, an early release chapter for a forthcoming volume on remote warfare and the purpose of the volume is, is really to provide a sort of an introduction to this concept of remote warfare but also to get there's many interdisciplinary approaches to address this issue, which is not necessarily as in the forefront of debate as, as other kinds of engagement. Um, and I think in, in your case, in the case of your chapter, it plays a very good introduction to the concept of remote warfare, but also a very excellent deep dive into the, the other issues surrounding it, particularly the reasons for its adoption and some of the problems yielded by this practice. But I thought for for sake of conceptual clarity, we could start with quite a basic question, although it's not necessarily a good look for somebody who's worked um, for the remote warfare program for several years to ask. But what exactly is remote warfare?
1: Liberal Western democracies are now increasingly resorting to a particular type of warfare that we call remote warfare to, to govern security threats from a distance. So so if you could look at, for instance, the 2011 NATO bombing of Libya or um, the training of Ugandan soldiers, as Lauren just referred to by uh, US AFRICOM, to fight Al-Shabaab, but also very much uh, the US-led coalition against ISIS in Syria and Iraq, the um, Operation Inherent Resolve, Um, we see that violence is exercised from afar. So remote warfare is then characterized or defined by a shift away from large boots on the ground, uh, deployments, such as we've seen in Afghanistan and in Iraq in 2003, uh, and towards light footprint military interventions. And that those may involve using drone strikes, airstrikes, special forces, uh, very often also private contractors, and training teams uh, who assist local forces and local militias on the ground to, to do the actual fighting and the actual killing and dying. So what we see and what we call remote warfare is there's um, a move away from, from a classic notion of war where violence is still exercised but, but without exposing Western military personnel to enemies in a declared war zone under the condition of mutual risk. So and and we're interested in in why we see this move to remote warfare and um, also to think through the the moral and political challenges of of this new war. And I think in in what we try and do in the the piece, uh, our key argument is that remote warfare, because of its far awayness, towards democratic political deliberation about war. So remote operations are often kept very secret. They're very often portrayed as precise and surgical. Um, and what they do is that they entail, and that's problematic in our eyes, they entail an extreme uneven distribution of, of suffering and death. And it are, it are these particular qualities that we think will make Western liberal democracies uh, more war prone in, in the future and not less. And, and that is um, what we argue then is, is the remote warfare paradox that military violence is so so remote and so so sanitized that it becomes uh, uncared for and, and even ceases to be defined as war. So that's how we see the term remote warfare as, as helpful.
0: Um, one of the things the article also addresses, as, as you mentioned, is the reasons why Western democracies have made this move to, I suppose you could call it fighting from a distance or, or you know, sort of outsourcing the burdens of warfare. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the key reasons why, why you see this trend happening.
1: So so then that's a very good question. So why, why do we see this now, this turn to this remote uh, form of interventionism? Um, and, and we see a lot of colleagues uh, asking themselves that question uh, and also trying to give labels to the, to the remoteness, remoteness of, of contemporary war. So we, we see all kinds of labels popping up, globalized war, coalition, proxy warfare, um, some people call it transnational shadow wars, or surrogate warfare, or vicarious warfare. Uh, we've termed it liquid warfare earlier in a in a piece we wrote in Security Dialogue. Um, but certainly, also your remote warfare program simply calls it remote warfare. And and there's there's I think different genres of explanations for for, for why we see this this term. Um, and we in the piece we identified three genres to explain the shift to what is considered this new way of war. Um, The first is democratic risk aversion, the second is is simply technology, Um, and the third one is networking, and I can briefly say something about each of them. So the first reason, democratic risk aversion, uh, argues that um, that it is um, democracies particularly uh, that turn to remote warfare as a way to as a way of risk aversion, and and maybe simply put, uh, decision makers in democracies fear losses among their own constituencies more than authoritarian leaders do because of you know rising numbers of casualties will have they fear adverse effects on public support and uh, simply simply lower their chance of re-election. So that's the argument that um, that is the reason why in democracies there's this strong appeal to turn to re- remote technologies of warfare, sim- simply to have less costs and therefore less risks politically. And the other argument argues that it's 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 much more technology driven. So uh, there's a lot of focus on the turn to military robotics and autonomous weapons. Um, as as explaining the turn to remote warfare simply because we now have this technology. And of course, although the relation between technology and war is is an old one, um, the recent revolution in military technology and the emergence of the military tech complex um, in this genre is seen to be the key driving force behind remote, remote warfare. So basically it's technology. And then the, the last one, the, the networking argument, or the genre that explains the rise to remote warfare from that idea of networking, um, is pretty prominent um, and has popped up largely ever since the publication of Stanley McChrystal's um, article in Foreign Policy, with this notion that it takes a network to defeat a network um, in contemporary. Warfare um, as something of a standard uh, in both military and academic analysis, and and very simply put, the argument here goes that because the enemies of the state, and in, in, in this case, for instance, ISIS, are operating through through networks and cells, the state now also must resort to similar tactics. So, simply put, remote warfare results from from basically the state imitating or mimicking its enemies and working, working remotely and secretly and shadowy uh, in, the same, in the same style as their, as their enemies. So these are the, basically the three explanations you would find in, in the literature that we, that we work from and with.
0: And looking at this idea of democratic risk aversion, and you mentioned that because authoritarian, compared to authoritarian regimes, they don't have to deal with that kind of idea of public backlash. There's been some debate about whether remote warfare is something that's strictly defined by West um, by a sort of Western liberal democracies, but there have also been approaches taken by states like Russia, um, Iran, China, sort of the Gulf states in, in terms of their manner of intervention. Do, do you think remote warfare is something that's applicable to uh, less democratic regimes as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we see this. We see this. Absolutely. Your examples are, are completely uh, right. We see Russia uh, resort to it. We see Iran doing it. Um, so definitely this is not exclusively something for Western states. It is something that we uh, decided to focus on mostly uh, on, on on Western societies, also largely because we feel as Western academics, um, we feel sort of obliged to to take our own, you know, case uh, as 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 an example of, uh, of further investigation, and as as a case to to sort of further further re- do further research on, and and also uh, try and quiz our own governments about the violence that is exercised in our own names. But it certainly is not an exclusively Western affair.
2: I think it's interesting to add also that Western militaries do claim that you know, China and Russia are also uh, in the business of, of engaging in remote warfare, but they will also readily admit that they, their strategies are much more advanced. Um, than uh, these other states, so we can also say that in um, that you know, Western militaries are actually leading the path in developing these autonomous weapons in um, the collaborations between the military tech society uh, and military tech industries. So um, it's another reason why we found it interesting to um, to uh, investigate. But I think what Yola was saying, absolutely. That we're also very interested in the democratic control over the wars waged in our name and how that is exercised, and how certain um, NGOs and civil society engage in, in trying to start a debate about uh, the risks of these type of warfare.
0: Because connected to this idea of, of sort of democratic risk aversion, um, some sometimes it's very difficult to pinpoint when trends like this start and when they end wars become very blurry but also the idea of when certain eras of warfare or approaches start quite a lot of debate has has suggested that with this idea of democratic um, risk aversion it's largely connected to this idea of war areas which comes from the costly wars in Iraq and afghanistan do you see those as being the pivot point in terms of where when this trend started or was this idea of wanting to avoid the burdens and risk of warfare Something that was in motion way before those those events.
2: Yeah. So so we also argue in the in the article look the it all these strategies that are now combined in remote warfare um have long trajectories and um, these have been studied. So the use of airstrikes, um, the rise of private security companies, um, the outsourcing to local others. So. Each strategy in itself is not new, but how they're being combined at this moment in time to allow certain parties to a conflict to completely remove themselves or nearly entirely remove themselves from the battlefield is something new. And that, yeah, what Yola already mentioned kind of forces us to rethink what we then define as war. If it's no longer about a duel, then how do we conceptualize it and if and sometimes like Leola also mentioned some politicians um don't even uh, uh label these types of mi- large-scale military intervention sites such as the nato bombings in libya they no longer label it as war or hostilities therefore um, there's no parliamentary control but I think yeah so each strategy has a long history uh, we mentioned for example the Vietnam War after the Vietnam War um, um, a, a, a certain shifts uh, started to take place um, in in the move towards um, removing our military personnel from um, uh, insecurity uh, and 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 these shifts have developed over time um, so with the program and in our chapter we really try and see what this means for our conceptualization of warfare, um, how this type of warfare is legitimised um, compared to, you know, the Vietnam War or the two thousand three invasion in Iraq, um, how, what that means for our democratic control of this type of warfare, and you know what happens when there is no longer a duel and there is no fair fight. How this type of warfare can lead to new forms of retaliation.
0: And. Yeah, one of the you mentioned there is this idea of it, whether it's defined as warfare. And I remember the, the chapters in this volume actually largely stem from a, a conference um, in 2019. Um, and I remember when the speakers actually said that they were one of the criticisms they had about remote warfare was one of them was that remote is a little bit of a misnomer because it's remote for people in Western populations, but for the people on the ground it's very real, which is a very valid point. But the other point they raised was that they weren't really sure that it was warfare, and they they came up with less snappy title of gray zone engagement in yeah uh, engagement in gray zone com- conflicts or, or something similar like that but is there a, a danger by not defining it as warfare does it kind of make it you know when we say it's it's something else like it's policing does that make it uh, potentially quite a dangerous practice because when we look at these practices and one thing that you outlined in the article is it does have very real consequences and it's actually quite a bi- you know a serious set of violent practices going on there so i was wondering is, is it quite dangerous from the start? suggesting this thing isn't more fair.
1: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think the whole concept of war is being, is being sort of, again, sanitized out of academic language too, which is interesting. Um, Barkawi wrote a really good piece on this in, uh, in 2011 of how actually, if you look at the, the academic landscape of war studies, there's, there's very few places in, in academia where actually war as a social phenomena is being studied. War is studied very often from military you know, colleges and uh, particular think tanks or from from ministries, um, but there's actually very few places where war is as a full social phenomenon is being is being studied and considered from an independent position. And 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 with that, he would argue or he argues that also this whole notion of war is 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 is, is slowly disappearing out of our vocabulary. Um, and, and we see this all the time, that we talk about missions, you know, a very religious term. It's a very interesting term that we talk about military missions as if we're, you know, going to save souls somewhere, or um, in military interventions or engagements. And we, we have these use, euphemisms to, to to escape this notion of war as much as possible. And I think we should bring that term back in and definitely call it warfare in that sense.
0: Because another thing on the, the topic of language that you raise in the article is connected this idea of sanitization, that there is this um, vocabulary that's commonly used, particularly things like uh, drone strikes, but also things like special forces, right? This idea that things can be surgical and precise, does that really reflect the, the reality of what's going on with these, these missions? Because there is a danger there that when we start looking at these things that they're very precise and methodical. That again, it, it makes things, makes them less messy.
1: Yeah, it makes it look very clean. And I think I, maybe if we zoom out a little... Uh, and and just sort of to tie back to your earlier question about about war and the phenomena of war because I think that is really an important question to 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 look at and put on the table. Um, and, and we think this question takes us to, you know to, to to core debates about war about what war means and what it does. Um, and in the piece we also try and think about that sort of war in essence is about the the always uncertain. Um, reworking of of truth, meaning, and order through violent means, and and the big problem with the new way of war is now that the public, but also parliaments and, and Congress, have very little idea about what happens and and what kind of reordering is taking place. Basically, war is is taken off the public's radar, and 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 there's 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 a number of components, you know, tied to that. For one, we think this happens because remote technologies help to overcome democracies' fear for body bags. We referred to that earlier. This, this idea of, of of how new technologies allow Western democracies to wage bloodless war uh, with very few deaths on our side. And certainly, of course, zero risk warfare is is very compelling to those who are not at the receiving end of the violence and our our concern with the proliferation of this type of violence lies exactly in its normalization of of this uneven distribution of death and suffering and and this how it presents us with the, with a paradox so if if bloodless war becomes a reality and if war becomes unreal to us. Will we as citizens of Western liberal democracies care enough to restrain and control the violence that is exercised in our name? Mm-hmm. Zero direct risks and no body bags returning. We do foresee that remote technologies will, will come to facilitate war. And that brings us to the point that you now raise about the, the language um, of, of contemporary warfare. Uh, and, and the dangers of, of the sanitization of, of war. Because the, the, the problem with remote technologies such as drone strikes is that they're present, presented exactly, as you say, as, as, as precise, uh, as, as surgical. And by framing acts of military violence in these, in these very medical terms, we're made to imagine that we're killing, killing with care, in a way. So we take issue with what we see as the production of, of a new type of, of ethical proposition that paradoxically presents killing, you know, through this language as a, as a sort of moral act of care, as some sort of ethical killing or as some sort of humanitized violence. And that is very, very problematic and also dangerous, we would argue, because the, the, the sanitization of, of warfare directs our attention away um, from what is essentially a very political act. And if we take, for instance, the coalition bombings, Operation Inherent uh, Resolve, that we take as a, as a case study in the peace, uh, the bombings of Iraq and Syria by this large coalition of forces, then the, these bombings need, need to be accounted for, both, both legally and, and politically. So why was the operation launched in, in the first place? what was the international legal mandate to, to do so? And if, if indeed the bombings against ISIS are legitimized as, as collective self-defense, is this then how Western democracies best protect our own and local citizens? What are, what are, as Lauren already mentioned, what are the boomerang effects of destroying 80% of a city such as Raqqa with utmost precision? and more complicated and, and very painful, perhaps, is, is why and how was ISIS able to emerge? How was the West involved in creating the conditions for ISIS' explosive success? And and we acknowledge that directly addressing particular wars and militarism is always intensely political. But exactly because of that, these questions uh, require analysis and consideration and debate. And in this, we need to move Beyond these discourses of precision and sanitization, because in the end of the day, precision killings are still killings. So yeah, it's very important to look into the into the language component of this um, remote warfare machine.
2: So I think also um, it's really good to understand why this language of precision and you know. Um, surgery is important so we're not um, feeling the consequences of war ourselves through returning body bags and really the only time that we wake up um, and kind of face as a public and as a parliament and face the kind of yeah, brutal realities of war is is when um, we hear about civilian casualties so you see that it, it legitimizing why we go to war we you know taking the anti-is coalition again is very much termed in precision. This is the most precise war in history. And um, we always aim for for zero civilian casualties. So this does create this image, my God, this is riskless both for us and and for those at the receiving end of our violence. Um, And therefore it seems like a very legitimate act of violence because also this is, you know, um, positioned against a a narrative of the evil barbaric um, enemy other being ISIS. But of course these, these interventions aren't riskless for those at the receiving end. And um, we've also studied and followed um, how civil society and organizations such as Amnesty and Air Wars have done fantastic and, and very harrowing work in, in many ways of trying to count literally the bodies of the dead. That uh, are caused by our military interventions and try to make them visible for Western publics and parliaments so that they're informed about the consequences of these types of war. And they also use um, remote technologies, so they do open source technology, open source um, intelligence tracking, you know, Facebook posts of when an, uh, a bombardment happens. And we're talking about large scale bombardments. So in the anti-IS coalition, over 100,000 bombs were dropped um, across Syria and Iraq. Now, uh, this is hard when to kind of um, fathom when you're faced with a narrative of, of, you know, um, this is the most precise war in history and no civilian, we always aim for no civilian casualties. you know, these, these bombs and, it dropped in urban centers and, and destroy, you know, 80% of oh, from cities such as Mosul and Raqqa, and really um, as a, a huge source of insecurity and threat to local populations. And and the numbers and the difference in numbers, so wars and Amnesty estimate, or airwalls estimate that between 8,000 and 13,000 civilian casualties occurred in, in the anti-IS coalition bombardments. And the coalition itself only acknowledges 1377. So that's only 10% of that amount. So we see also both in the legitimate, you know, before we engage in violence, it's very much legitimized in terms of precision. But also, once the violent act has taken place, um, Western states, you know, do their best to try and uh, undermine and, and not acknowledge the destruction that's taken place. And I think that makes it very hard for Western publics and parliaments to really get a clear vision and understanding of, of what the consequences of this type of warfare is. And I think that's why we really have to keep challenging this discourse of precision and not take it at face value.
0: Because one of the areas that you might expect there to be, I suppose, an information source for the public on this would be the media. However, in terms of the relationship of the media and war, there's been a lot written, but it tends to be the case, although not always, that the media, unless there's some kind of elite debate going on, tends to have this rally around the flag effects, particularly in more conventional wars. Um, in terms of remote warfare, have you have you noticed sort of any kind of traits? I mean, is the media largely following the government line on on things like civilian casualties and, and the narrative surrounding intervention or do you think it, is, it has, is actually taking a more adversarial approach on things like this because we tend to find remote warfare in terms of the courage it receives is really not ever on the front page it's normally pushed very far back
2: yeah so so quite interesting um air wars the organization i was just mentioning um who, who who's in the business of counting the bodies of the dead they've also done a media um study and and really show that um when it's Western remote warfare interventions. Um, The media often doesn't pick up on it or after the fact. But when, for example, it's um, Russia remote warfare interventions, then it's a day-to-day tracking and Air Wars is kind of quoted in in these trackings as a legitimate kind of actor. And we see that when when it's about Western interventions, often, yes, Air Wars numbers are used, but they're also followed up by, quote, by a coalition member saying, "This is again the most precise war in history, and we're doing our best to save civilians." So this makes it again, like I said, very difficult for I think a Western public to know and understand the the true kind of consequences on the ground. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, and and also because these are these are all these mostly are wars that are kept uh, literally very secret. Um, you know, under under um state security legitimizations and justifications, it's very hard for journalists as well to, to find facts and to get the story out. Uh for instance, in our case here in the Netherlands, we had in 2015 uh the Dutch participating in the uh in the inner resolve operation, uh hitting a target in Hawija in Iraq, um, causing a lot of um Civilian deaths and um, we're still in the midst of trying to get including parliament is trying to get clarity uh, uh, about what happened and uh, and the the Ministry of defense is still unwilling to give out details and information so it's also we we have seen journalists really trying to to uh, to get that story out, but they're being uh, yeah they're being not helped and, and, and actually blocked by by the government to um, actually bring up bring their story so that is also hugely
0: problematic so i suppose moving forward one of the things that is, is called for is this idea of getting i suppose bringing politics back into the base and making these things um more accountable and more oversight and i think a lot of it is connected to this idea that because it falls below the threshold of, of a lot of these activities are below the threshold of engagement this idea of a gray zone. they can obviously be, sometimes be seen as non-combat and therefore not you know, upheld to the same level of scrutiny. But there would be a counter-argument to say that because of the secretive nature of these kind of things, um, there's a desire to keep this kind of opacity surrounding these practices. We do a lot of work on special forces where people have said this idea, you know, these ideas are here for a reason. These kind of policies are not commenting on certain activities are there because there's security, you know, there's a security issue here and we don't want to endanger what these guys are doing on the ground. Um, why, Why is sort of transparency so important?
2: yeah we often see this kind of tension um and states legitimizing their own secrecy in name of national operational and and even personal security during missions and you know and parliament always calling for more transparency um and accountability and i think there are uh, um Uh, different levels of transparency that can occur throughout and after a mission. But I think it's absolutely crucial that um, uh, during a mission, um, uh, Parliament is informed by about the consequences of this type of warfare, because they are also part of the decision to continue or the decision to re-engage. And if they have absolutely no information about the, the outcome of this war, then they can't, play their crucial democratic role. And I think it's incredible. So that I would say is very important during a mission, but also if we have no acknowledgement of the suffering that has occurred. So Yola was talking about this bombardment and Hawija. So the Dutch for five years um, didn't acknowledge that they were even responsible for, for this attack. Whereas it was well known that many civilian casualties occurred. And then afterwards they played this, game of strategic ign- ignorance and, and, and try to um, say well the civilian count is not legitimate and we don't know how many civilians occurred it's, you know this game to not take political accountability we have to think about what that means for and how that is perceived in the eyes of those civilians who know exactly what happened and who died um, due to that intervention and what kind of insecurities that creates but also what kind of grievances that creates to this style of what we call Western liberation. So I think transparency and accountability is crucial if we don't want to feed into the next um, round of uh, cycle of of violence.
0: And I think one thing we often discover is that this idea of linking... um, When we talk about security, there is often more of a strategic gain to be had through transparency, particularly when you look at things like civilian casualties, because the narrative is not necessarily truthful from Western States, particularly in the US, and particularly around the, the, the no civilian casualty narrative that was going around quite heavily until recently, which is obviously not, not the case. What we've kind of seen and a lot of NGOs have discovered is it does actually empower certain groups because when they provide counter-narratives, they're being more truthful about what is going on on the ground. I think it, in some ways what we've discovered is that we lose by having secrecy around why we're in places, what is actually going on. We tend to lose control of this narrative anyway. And this has very serious strategic consequences for what we're trying to do in these places.
1: Yeah, and also also the notion that, you know, in this digital time and age, it is very naive to think that, you know, everything is recorded, everything is shared, everything is is. You know, in the echo chambers of internet, is, is 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 shared and sent around. So it's 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 not very strategic, really, to think that you could, in the end, keep that kind of secrecy or keep it away from from at least certain audiences. And that's that's of course what happens. Yeah. And how we, in that sense, also create our own Frankenstein's time and again. You know. Those were the questions I referred earlier back to. Sort of, what is the connection between the rise of ISIS and the uh, the, the massive U.S. British intervention in 2003? You know, it, it would be it would be quite naive to think that there's no connection. So we're constantly creating our own Frankenstein's by thinking that this can all be kept secret and it's not going to boomerang back into our own societies too.
0: What roles do you see NGOs playing in this, in this process? Um, is that, Are the NGOs the key people who are going to keep leading this conversation in the future, or is this going to be something that you see becoming more of a, you know, a mainstream political issue?
2: Yeah, so I, I'll pick up on that. Um, I think the role of NGOs um, also uh, investigative journalists and academics like ourselves and the collaboration between these different actors is of crucial importance. So uh, it takes, we say, an assemblage to wage uh, war, remote war, uh, so coalition warfare from a distance, but it also takes an assemblage of different actors to resist and 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 push for um different practices so here in the netherlands we're part of a consortium with airwars and amnesty and and a number of uh, dutch ngos such as Pax and open states foundation and we're really trying to collaborate also with the ministry of defense to improve their transparency records to um, say you know, transparency and the short and long term will work in your benefit, um, and we now are engaging in round tables with them. So I think this these kind of collaborations are incredibly important. A to bring the truth to the table, and we need each other. We're, there's no one expert in this field, we need each other's expertise to, to unravel the you know very complex lines of responsibility in these types of warfare, um, but also to pressure our governments to to behave differently um, so there I, I i draw a lot of hope from um, but uh, a lot of work still is yet to done be done yeah.
1: yeah yeah i think absolutely i think and with that with those kinds of coalitions um uh, what we aim to do is to indeed to 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 bring to bring the public back into this and and to bring politics back into these uh, phenomena and to have debate about it you know we can disagree on a lot of things but at least have it out there um in the public on the table um, And 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 there's a couple of things that you know there's a couple of very straightforward things that we can suggest that we're trying to suggest here so so things can be done in that sense uh f- for one i think the the new the new strategies for military engagement that come with remote warfare have to find a reflection in in new political decision-making procedures, and we're pushing for that now in this in this in this coalition that we're we're having with these uh, these NGOs. Um, so, new political decision-making procedures are, are needed. Uh, any any form of military intervention, whether it's offensive or defensive, that that results in acts of physical harm on the ground should eventually be put through careful parliamentary scrutiny, uh, such as for instance in the u s the war powers resolution um, you know and, and this is what what engaging in hostilities you know this euphemism uh, sh- should mean you know inflicting harm to enemy combatants or civilians, and that process always has to to be carefully um, thought through in, in, in public debate, but certainly in, in parliaments and in Congress. Uh, and another thing that we're, we're trying to do with this, this group is to, and of course, remote warfare program is very prominent in that sense in, in writing its reports and and, um, and and making these kinds of podcasts is is we need more analysis and dissemination and debate on the intimate realities of remote warfare. So, um, you know, to set up research Projects also looking into what these, how these bombardments, uh, these types of interventions, how they uh, resonate, reverberate in in local in locales in theaters of war. Um, so do research at the the receiving end of this of this story of the violence. And and I think um, and that's also how we how we end the piece uh, the, the, the the chapter is that. Western democracy's claims to the moral high ground in respect to the brutality of war are really uncalled for. Um, as we say in the peace, you know all, all war is, is terrible. Um, whether it's executed by a soldier piloting a weaponized drone or an insurgent's imp- improvised explosive device. you know there's no such thing as sophisticated violence, and this notion of, of, of the clean and precise violence that we execute is is something that really has to be uh, debated and discussed and, and, and countered um, in different ways.
0: Well, I think on that note, it's probably a really good place to end. I think you've given lots of food for thought. And I think I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's gone into a lot of detail in such a short space of time. Um, is there anything either of you want to add um, before we wrap up?
1: No, great. Thanks for, thanks for the interview.
0: Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. For those who want to read in more depth about the topics we covered, we put links to any research or publications that were mentioned in the episode notes. If you want to stay up to date with the Remote Author Program and Oxford Research Group's work, please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at RG Info and at remote underscore Warfare. You can listen to all previous episodes of our podcast free of charge by following the link at the top of the page. We look forward to you joining us soon.